podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello there and welcome to the final 1865 Forest Ramble of the regular season. My name is Rich Ferraro and we are here to discuss the way that Forest have played this season. We're here to look forward to the playoff encounters with Sheffield United and we're here to have a little bit of a... Uh, a review of, of events that have gone past. In amongst all of that, we will also be thinking about our player of the season, our goal of the season. We'll be talking about VAR and we'll also give you the updates from Fan Hub. And finally, we've got another giveaway for you for some lovely forest related merch from the terrace. But before we do any of that, let's say hello to this month's panel. So we only heard from you at the weekend. But let's hear from you again. Welcome to Tom Newton. Hi, guys. Hello there. Uh, a big welcome back to Bass. Yep. And finally, for the time being, we would like to say a big welcome to Stephen Topless. Hello. All right. So let's start off with uh, a couple of things that are on our mind. The most important thing to note is obviously that we are in the playoffs. And let's just be honest, none of us could have imagined that back in September. Um, let's just have a few thoughts. Um, Stephen, I want to start with you. We've established that September, at that point, we thought the season was going to be a dead loss. where Relegation was a certainty. Um, the thought of making the top half of the table, never mind the playoffs, never mind being in contention or automatic. Um, those were all pipe dreams at the time, weren't they? Tell us what you feel about the way the season has panned out. It's been remarkable. And I don't think I've ever seen a forest season like this with such a dramatic turnaround and and a team going from one end of the table to another so dramatically and and so enjoyably as well. The, the way that the team performed when Steve Cooper came in the football improved we had some brilliant results some incredible moments along the way with late goals and big wins away from home and there's been even if we don't go up this season there's been so much to talk about and so much that we're going to look back on fondly and and remember for years to come actually just it's been that good this season. Warm words indeed now Baz you and I um We've been going to matches together for a long time. And uh, one of the key stats that I wanted to bring in here is that Forest have got their highest points tally since they actually won the championship under Dave Harry Bassett back in uh, 1998. Um, now, that was a season where Forest were demonstrably the best team in the division. But equally, we didn't give the other teams a seven game head start then, did we? No, um, it, uh, I think I said this in one of the earlier podcasts is um basically a seven game head start that's 21 points that's basically we we put ourselves in a similar position to Derby County and look where we've ended up that's that's quite astounding but um what I love most about this season more than anything else is and I think um it was the the Swansea game obviously the last home game of the season at the time. And um, the connection between the fans and the players is not like anything I've ever seen before. It's even more than the, which I'm sure we're going to return to later on, is the even more than the Paul Hart season. Um, the, the connection between the players and the fans is just incredible. Um, 
that there's a sense of togetherness that I've not experienced for years and years. And yeah, you're absolutely right. We will come back to 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 that a little bit later on. We'll come back to times past. Um, I will just uh, come to you, Tom. I think one of the things that was said on the Quest Highlights show by Danny Cowley actually was the mark of a good manager is he, he makes players better. And I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever, is there, that there's a there's a, a core of about 15, 16 players that Steve Cooper has has relied on throughout the season. And every single one of those players has pretty much got better as the season has gone on, haven't they? Yeah. And Chris Hewton did say when he had first eight games that I can't get any more out of these players, which was a bit strange. Then Steve Cooper's come in and Ryan Yates is just one of those players who's been absolutely brilliant since Steve Cooper's walked through the door. There's other players who are playing better than the thought they could play. And um, then obviously in January, we've added a bit to it in terms of Steve Cook coming in, uh, Keenan Davis, and then to a lesser extent, Richie Larea, who we've only just seen on a pitch. So, uh, yeah, the uh, upturning results since September has been remarkable. And um, hats off to Steve Cooper for obviously um, giving us one of our best seasons of uh, recent time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, just coming back to you, uh, Baz, I think one of the things as well with um, that we've often discussed in our dis- in in our match reports, and and also just a topic that has come up over the years. I think we talked about it when when we were podcasting back in the Billy Davis Mark One days. Another another thing about a good manager is they make the team play better than the sum of their parts. Would you say that that's been a hallmark of the Cooper approach? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the same team that Chris Hewton had. And under Chris Hewton, we were disjointed, lacking confidence, didn't have a style, didn't have any, didn't have anything about us. So take the same group of players and he's made them not only a cohesive whole, we've got a distinct style and identity, as uh, Steve Cooper likes to call it. Um, and each individual player you get the feeling that they're they're playing above themselves every single game that they that they're um that put them together and as you say they're they're greater than the sum of their parts which is exactly what you want from from your manager absolutely and and just briefly to come back to you tom one of the other things that um we discussed with our whole match report is obviously all the changes that were made to the team you could tell that that kind of that 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 unit had got used to playing with each other so when there were that many changes to the team as you'd expect it created a bit of disruption it meant that the the, the level of performance um, and the effectiveness wasn't quite that strong so it, it, is that a positive or a negative in terms of he relies on a core of players i think any manager relies on a core of players even like peppert uh, man city he's but having said that he's got like two really good players for every single position and we haven't got that so I think with Steve Cooper, it's going to be a work in progress. I think over time, as he brings players in to match what he wants, then it'd be a bit more better. You know, if, let's say like a couple of players are out injured or suspended, it will happen in time. But having said that, he's only had like one transfer window, so he hasn't actually had that uh, to his disposal yet. So it's going to take time over a couple of transfer windows to get the players in for that to happen. But having said that, the, he's... Players what come in yesterday, they weren't bad, but they just weren't as good as the core what he's been using, and um, with the core what I've been using, hence why we've 
had a um, really good season since September. Yeah, and just to recap what we said in in our match report, which listeners, if you haven't caught it yet, it is in your feed. Uh, just go to linktree uh, slash Nottingham underscore forest. But as we said, you there would have been a very different team put out if automatic promotion had still been at stake. You would have put out the first team regardless of a few injuries, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think it was a good decision for him yesterday to actually rest those players. Colback wasn't in the squad, so it gives him like a bit longer to recover from the knocks he's been um, having. So, so yeah, so just I wasn't surprised with the t- uh, team selection yesterday. Okay, Baz, you just want to jump in there again? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like um, Sabri made made a point of having a very tight core of small a small number of players that he used again and again and again. Um, and I can see the point of that because he, they, they all get used to each other. They get used to playing the same style and they get used to playing alongside each other and learning each other's quirks and all that kind of stuff. The worry for me, and I think the whole game kind of shows it, is those players are going to have been... I mean, yeah, the, the fan hub thing where you predict the players, <laughs> the number of times that we've got a free pint out of it because we've, we've predicted what they're going to be because it's it's obvious what Steve Cooper's going to do every single game because it's pretty much unchanged. The problem with that is those players now have played every single match this season, so they're going to be knackered and they're going to have to be asked to play two, maybe three extra games on top of it. So that's the worry. And then when the other players come in, they haven't had that same experience of playing in the team. So I can see why he's done it, but it has it has its benefits and its um and its negatives as well. Mm. Um Stephen, you've been you've been waiting patiently there. I mean, uh, is that something that you can see Forrest trying to remedy in the forthcoming transfer windows? We saw in January that it wasn't just about numbers, it's also about getting quality in. So Obviously, Richie Larrier and Jonathan Panzo had to wait a long time to get their chance. But Sam Surridge, Keenan Davis, Steve Cook, they were able to be part of the squad straight away. So there's a quality versus quantity issue there, isn't there? There is. And when you're playing 46 games in the season, you, you do need that quality on the bench because we've seen it before. I think we, Sabri's season was a great example of this when we needed to to dip into the reserves the, the quality of the team drops off and it, it just players like Dia Carby and Guerrero, these players who just didn't deliver when we needed them to. Um, whereas with Steve Cooper, it's a good mix because he's actually got those players who are not playing being very much part of the squad. They might not be in the team every week, but they are fighting for the cause and they believe in what's going on. And I think that is a big caveat to what's been going on this season and why we've been so successful. And the big example of that was when Toby Figueredo had to come back into the team, having spent a couple of months on the sidelines, he came in and he was straight back on it. And if anything, his performances were better than when he was in the team before. So if you combine that, that team spirit and that squad spirit that Steve Cooper's obviously building if we can then add the quality on top of that next season and more in reserve with the players willing to come in and, and hit the, ra- the ground running, so to speak. Yeah. It, it promises to be really exciting building this squad f- further forward from, from this season, because essentially as we've already touched on, it's Chris Houston's team with a couple of Steve Cooper signings. It's so I'm just excited to see what, what can happen when he's got the opportunity to really put his own team together and his own squad. 
Mm, uh, by the way, I'd just like to to um, mention that in a f- period of time, it's five years since the Greeks took over and we've had a huge player turnover. Or was it something like 80 odd signings in five years? The likes of Taxidis, Karim, Guerrero. So I'd like to thank you, Stephen, for reminding us that Adama Diakabi actually was a thing. So, <laughs> um, Tom, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, regarding future recruitment, I'm probably like going a couple of um, stages ahead of the part here. But moving forward, we've got to start moving away from relying on loan players because if we don't go up this season, it's a matter of Keenan Davis will go back to Villa, Jed Spence will go back to Middlesbrough, Maxwell to Sheffield United, James Garner back to Man United. He probably doesn't want to go back to Man United, but he's their player. Um, and we've got to try and build something now, having players here on permanent contracts rather than... I mean, the odd loan signing here and there is OK, you know, if you just want that bit of quality from the Premier League coming into your side. But we've got to step away from... Because it seems like every single summer, these uh, players who get on loan, we're losing them. It's hard to replace that quality. So Steve Cooper's from this summer, whatever happens, he needs a, play, a core player there what's going to keep... It. Um, what's going to stay at the City Ground for the next two or three years so he can build on it because I just don't want this season to be a flash in the pan then we back to like what mid-table next season. Yeah I mean so I think that that's an important point and as you say I think we'll we may we may end up coming back to that but um, uh, maybe it's telling the fact that Steve Cook and Sam Surridge were players who were signed on permanent de- de- deals. Uh, Keenan Davis, I suppose, was a slightly different situation um, for whatever reason. But um, yeah, Surridge and Cook, those were those were signings that were all welcomed, and the fact that they are Forest players, come what may. So um, let's talk about something else then. So we know that it's uh, go on, Baz. Well, um, I'm, I'm assuming you, you want to talk about. Um... Uh, who we're playing next. That's where we were going to go, yeah. Because um, actually, I think this leads in quite nicely. Um, one of the big... Um, we're going to talk about 2003, about the poor heart season, about Sheffield United, about the trauma that certain of us carry with us from that, what, 20, 19 years ago, that we still carry with us, that we still shudder and wake up screaming in the middle of the night. Um, one of the worst things about that was that afterwards we had this amazing team and it was basically dismantled for a variety of reasons. Um, and that's kind of what's going to happen with this side now is, is because there's so many lone players in there, because the likes of we're not going to be able to keep Spence, we're not going to be able to keep one of Worrell or Johnson, and we're not going to be able to keep Keenan Davis if we don't go up. So it is, it is going to be a rebuilding job if we don't go up is no matter what happens really. And it's going to be a rebuilding job if we do go up because we're going to have to improve the quality of the players we've got. So, Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Let's talk about that for a minute before we, we go back to Sheffield United. Um, so for those of us who, who um, can remember that far back, it wasn't like you say, it wasn't just about the, the trauma of losing. It was the fact that then that team was broken up. So there were three players out of contract. It was Shimaker, Brennan and Jack Lester. 
Um, they were sort of key first teamers. Darren Huckabee was on loan and he was not retained. There's various arguments and and various truths or mistruths about about what happens there. Although I think Hooks has more or less said it out loud now since then on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a, a a real concern. Now you've mentioned there about Worrell or Johnson uh, going, Baz. One of the things that I was thinking about with the team selection yesterday was Loic was on the bench and Loic and Jonathan Panzo haven't had uh, a look in because McKenna and Worrell have been so imperious. And I was just thinking, actually, is Loic's best chance of having a Forest career is probably if Joe Worrell leaves, isn't it? He probably maybe part of the reason that he was signed was thinking, well, we might not keep Waza for very long. Yeah, I think I think I can see that. And there's there's part of me that thinks if I was Joe Worrell, this is my chance now. <laughs> no matter how much I love the club and where I've come from and all that sort of stuff, this is my chance to to play at a higher level. And I either get it this season with Forest or I'm going to get the offers. This is going to probably be the last time I'm going to get the offers to, to, to come in at this rep, this level. So I, I should take it. Yeah, I, I would just... I was talking with uh, with Mrs. F uh, yesterday, and we were also just saying that uh, if he hadn't been a Forest supporter, Wazza would surely have left last summer. I think it's the fact that he's a red is probably what kept him at the club for another year. Um, Tom, you've been dying to come in there. Yeah, the, going back to uh, the summer of 2003, the most frustrating aspect of that was all those players, apart from Pockby, who was obviously alone from Man City. None of the players, apart from Schimmicker, went to a higher league. I mean, um, Brennan, um, Jim Brennan, I think, went to Norwich, who were in the same league as us at the time. Leicester went to Sheffield United. Um, so, and they were our players. So, it was so we had the power of doing something and they didn't do anything. And, and obviously, two years down the line, we got relegated from the Championship. So, I think it's, it's the same, but a bit different because obviously we have the power to do something and we didn't, and ultimately we lost our championship status a couple of years down the line. Yeah, and um, it's worth remembering for those of you who are maybe a little bit younger than us, uh, the context there was Nigel Doughty was was really worried about dipping his hand into his pocket because of the ITV Digital um, uh, fiasco. So I'm hoping that Forrester are in a different place now whereby the club ownership are willing and able to invest in a sensible way. Having said that, you know, I think we can all agree that, that Doughty did get it wrong because, um, or the Doughty regime did get it wrong because they let those players go and then you have to speculate to accumulate to sign other players to try and fill that gap. And, it, you know, we all know what happened. We don't need to rake over old ground there. Stephen? There is something about this summer and this playoff campaign. I, I wonder if this is a bit of a sliding doors moment for us. If we can just get up and keep hold of this team, keep it together and keep building the way we have, then there's a real opportunity there, I think, to establish. Parallels to 2003, I think most people who talk about that side believe if they got up, they would have stayed up and managed to to become an established Premier League team. And I, I get the same feeling about this squad. If we can keep it together, they can continue to develop as a group and, and just have a go at the Premier League. And uh, yeah... It, not to put too much pressure on the playoffs because you know we've been there before, but it does feel like it could be a pivotal summer, whatever happens. There are so many parallels. We, we were talking about this the other day when we were doing the match report. There are so many parallels between today and 
and 2003. So back then, we had a manager who played had us playing fast counter-attacking football with lots and lots of academy graduates playing a front three, one of whom was called Johnson. And this year, we have a manager who plays fast counter-attacking football with lots of academy graduates and a front three where one of the players is called Johnson and happens to be genetically related to the other one. The, the, the parallels are unbelievable and it kind of it fills me with confidence and it also fills me with utter dread mm, yeah so I, I mean I have to say I'm, I'm not quite as full of uh, full of optimism as you uh, Stephen because I think the gulf between the championship and Premier League is is ever greater but I do agree that the foundations that the club have got by having the academy graduates coming through by having a manager who really wants to look after the club from top to bottom and if we're, if we're going back over old ground, that was the difference as well with the Billy Davis era. Because Billy Davis, he got the team playing greater than some of his parts. He got extra performance at, you know, players like Paul Anderson and Nathan Tyson um, and Dexter Blackstock. They never played as well for anyone else as they did under Billy Davis at Forest. Um, even Lee Camp, actually. So there's parallels there. But Billy Davis didn't care about the academy or anything other than the first team. The fabric of the club wasn't important to him. Um, now, you could argue that's just a management style, but Steve Cooper and the current regime with Dane Murphy as the chief executive, there's obviously a lot of care being taken in terms of what's happening, not just at first team level, but, but at levels down. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, I think the, the, there is that... A uh, bigger picture now going on at the club. People are thinking more about just what's happening on the pitch and and finishing in the top six. As I think earlier in the Greek regime, we were guilty of just trying to assemble a team to get promoted without putting the foundations in and and setting the club up to be a Premier League outfit. Whereas now, I think that thinking is there. We've got a manager who wants to tap into the academy and wants to develop the club build it and and people around him as well Gary Brazil Chris Brass Dave Murphy as you've mentioned there's a there's more wider thinking going on about the health of the club and how the club can develop than there has been in in so many of our previous regimes that does fill me with confidence if it doesn't work for us this season I think it puts us in a stronger position to come back again next year regardless of what happens if the team gets picked apart I think I think the recruitment so far has been good from what we've seen under Murphy and Cooper. And yeah, that would fill me with a bit more confidence that we will bring the right players in to replace what goes out. We've got Cooper in for another season as well, his first full season as manager. And that's, that provides a bit of momentum and a bit of something to build on in its nature. So whatever happens, I think the club's in a far better place than it perhaps would have been under previous playoff regimes if you like and where we've been before and going on top of that is that I can't remember where I've seen or heard it but Steve Cooper wants the academy teams to play how he wants so when the players come through the age groups and and obviously get to the first team they've got like a, a good blueprint of how the football and we've never had that we've never had that ethos below the first team it's like Everything seems separate. You had the first team playing in a certain way and the academy just like was the success. But now everything's like um, interlinked. And that's going to, like said, uh, Stephen, it's going to put this in good stead for years to come. And Steve Cooper hopefully is going to stay here 
for a long amount of time and just keep building on the good work he's put in this season. Yeah, I think there's two managers who've made an attempt to have that kind of footballing ethos run all the way through the club. One was the aforementioned Paul Hart. So again, those parallels. Um, the other one was probably Sean O'Driscoll. But of course, when you're only manager for six months, it's harder to do, isn't it, Baz? The one who got away. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Tom, I'm going to come back to you because what we've discussed in the past, both on and off pod, is that feeling we had. We did have a thread in our WhatsApp group about is it just me or has anyone else got PTSD about playing Sheffield United in the playoffs? And Tom, you're the one who said you're less bothered about it than the rest of us. But I've got a question for you. Would it have been worse to have drawn Luton in the playoffs? Because I personally think it would. Um, Yeah. Um, But it's just what's happening in the game um, on Good Friday. I'm not making excuses, but Forrest never got going. They were in a battle and they never won the battle and ultimately lost 1-0. And um, with how um, Nathan Jones is and how he gears his team up. Um, so I wouldn't mind seeing them in the playoff final on a bigger pitch and we can dominate him. But I think it's a great level for them um, at Kenilworth Road on that small pitch where they can like contain teams. But uh, I think a lot of football has gone under the, the bridge since 2003 so um, um, with the striking problems Sheffield United have at the moment I'm not worried but come quarter past nine on Saturday um, waiting for the train to go up to Sheffield I might be bricking it a bit more than I am at the moment. (laughs) And can I congratulate you on mixing your metaphors with football going under the bridge so that's that's, that's (laughs) very poetic that. Um, Stephen would you have preferred Sheffield United or Luton? With two minutes to go and Brennan having slotted in that penalty at Hull, I probably would have preferred Luton. Um, But the more I think about it, the more I could see them doing us over two legs and they'd be a bit of a Blackpool team. That that side that gets in there. Oh, more PTSD. I know, I know. But that team that gets in there with nothing to lose, nobody expects them to, to do anything in the playoffs. They've got a free run at it. And yeah, we've been on the receiving end of that against Blackpool and more PTSD against Yeovil as well. So I would, I'd like to avoid a repeat of that. And I, I think the more I think about Sheffield United, the more I think the way they play will suit us. It's going to be more of an open game. They're going to try and attack a bit more, which hopefully allows us to play a bit more of our football how we want to and hopefully get the results we need from it as well. Go on, Tom, quickly. And regarding Yeovil... The two players who were in that team, Nathan Jones and Chris Cohen, are now manager and assistant at Luton. Yeah, uh, thanks for reminding us about Nathan Jones <laughs> that night. Baz, he was your favourite player in that in that Yeovil home leg, wasn't he? Yeah, I'm trying to. I, no, yeah, of all the of all the playoff humiliations, Yeovil's <laughs> probably the worst, and I'll try to just forget about it. Yes. However, at the time, I do very distinctly remember you being absolutely, absolutely spitting feathers because Nathan Jones was the Oval captain that night. And I remember you calling him all kinds of names under the sun, most of them which were prefixed with the word dirty. So make of that what you will. Now, um, thank you very much, everyone, for that discussion. What I will say is uh, we are going to go to Jeremy Davis's sketch in just a second. But first, we'd like to hear from one of our friends who is a Sheffield United fan. 
Hello, um, thank you so much for wanting my contributions to Forest Ramble. How exciting. Um, I'm Paige. We are playing Forest um, in the playoffs, Blades versus Forest. What a match that's going to be. I think, um, to be honest, quite pleased we're playing Forest and not Bournemouth had it gone any other way. Um, but at the same time, it's going to be quite tense because I know a lot of Forest supporters. So I think, um, yeah, tough, um, a tough couple of nail-binding moments ahead I'm sure um yeah in terms of how I think Forrest have played this season it's going to pain me to say but I do think you have had quite an impressive season um given that you spent like I don't know like the first six or seven weeks at the bottom of the championship well to be fair along with Sheffield United not too um kind of you know towards the bottom of the championship so I think to have turned it around to be one point behind Bournemouth um, and it come down to that match where you could have got automatic promotion. But anyway, no, I do think you have had an impressive season. Um, and I do think we are going to have um, some few nail-biting moments when Blades do play Forest. But at the end of the day, do you think we deserve to go back up? And, you know, we are we are Den Blades at the end of the day. And um, we have had a few kind of really impressive matches and are on a bit of a streak. So I'm really hoping that can continue um and up the blades <laughs> you're listening to 1865 the nottingham forest podcast the 1865 sketch by jeremy davis make no mistake forest fans deserve to get excited about the exploits of this current team after what's felt like a millennium of gloom since we were last in the top flight before the turn of the century but for all that this current crop is probably the most exciting since the cluffy era in which I'm including the Frank Clark years because it's part of the same dynasty, in the same way that one speaks about Gordon Brown's premiership in the same breath as Tony Blair's, or the reign of Elizabeth I as part of the same Tudor period as her granddad. I was still a bit surprised when Five Lives reporter leaned into the notion that we might be witnessing the beginnings of a new generation of miracle men by likening Sam Surridge's winner against Peterborough with Trevor Francis's goal against Malmo in 1979. Now, I'm not opposed to hyperbole in principle, but it did bring to mind Joe Kinnear's rant about the club being obsessed with its past. I don't think that if any other championship club had scored a late winning goal like that for a hard-fought match in the second tier, it would have drawn comparisons with a goal that won the European Cup. The goal-scoring feats of Alexandra Mitrovic have drawn understandable praise from the media, but no one is likening him to Van Basten or Lewandowski. When Bournemouth came from 3-0 down against Swansea the other day, no one was likening it to the miracle of Istanbul. But it does fit one of the more distinctive tropes of football commentary, the fatuous and unrealistic comparison. This is something that only seems to happen in football. Rugby players are never labelled as the new Lomu, Edwards or Wilkinson. Johnny Wilkinson himself was called the new David Beckham by Natasha Kaplinsky at one point. But then he spent the next four years aspiring to be the new Brazilian Ronaldo by being injured until the next World Cup rolled around. Even in the tennis at Wimbledon, surely the most tightly bound by tradition of all English sporting institutions, you never hear a great forehand winner compared by commentators to a shot by Sampras or McEnroe. The conventions of the fatuous comparison are strictly observed in this Surridge-Francis example. Firstly, it must take a huge leap of imagination in comparing small things to great, on the level of comparing Boris Johnson with Churchill, or myself, a comedy-writing Nottingham Forest fan who does podcasts with Matt Ford. 
Look at the way any Argentine number 10 who can dribble past more than one player is instantly labelled the new Maradona. Secondly, it has to properly reach back into history in a way that makes the commentator seem wizened and well-read. Comparing Surridge's goal with, say, one scored by Britta Sambalonga for Forrest a few seasons back wouldn't cut it at all. This kind of thing really doesn't help us shift the impression that we are imprisoned by our history. At the time, Kinnear's remarks were reminiscent of the line taken by Howard Wilkinson when he joined Leeds and took down all the posters of the Reavy era side to lift the weight of history from David Batty's shoulders. The big difference is that Wilco won the league and signed Cantona, whereas Kinnear took Forrest to the bottom of the league and signed Andy Impey. A less celebrated signing at Leeds in that championship-winning season under Wilco was Steve Hodge, the man who no longer has Maradona's shirt. After offloading it at auction, the weight of history lifted from his shoulders for the bargain price of £7.5 million. And what Forrest fan could begrudge one of our own his good fortune? Forrest, of course, go on to a playoff semi-final against Sheffield United. Uh, what was that about the weight of history? Thank you to Paige and thank you to Jeremy for your sketches throughout the season. Now, let's just have a little bit of an update from our friends at FanHub. Uh, for those of you who've been listening regularly, you'll know that we've been uh, banging on about FanHub, who've been uh, working as friends of the pod. And you will be able to see our items come up if you are a FanHub subscriber. They'll come up in your feed. Now, what we'd like to do is just point out that Forest are 24th in the club's leaderboard, which is a sign that um, all of you who are FanHub subscribers have been putting in your team predictions, checking in at matches and so on and so forth. And in terms of the club leaderboard uh, for Forest, the person who's at the top of the leaderboard at the moment is Olivia77. In second place is NG2, NFFC1865. I don't quite know how you came up with that username. And in third place at the moment, Jack Smith 981. Um, so congratulations to you lot. And also, as Paz pointed out, there's free points available. So with the team predictor, if you get 11 out of 11, then you get a uh, you get a free drink, which you can redeem at a We Love Sport venue. Now, the other thing I'd like to mention about FanHub is also that they are going to be doing some playoff specials. So I know it's a big if. But if Forrest get to the playoff final, then there's going to be a bit of a fan hub meetup with the chance of you getting a free drink if you are attending the match at Wembley. Uh, more details to come. But if you're a fan hub subscriber, then you'll have had an email about it and you'll be getting more communication. If you're not registered with a fan hub, then just look up fan hub in your app store of choice. Uh, register with your username. And as a Forest supporter, it's a good way of keeping up with the latest news to do with the club. And also the team predictors, a bit of fun with the chance of winning a free point. So what more could you want? Now, let's also talk about some other friends of the podcast, our friends at The Terrace, who've kindly sponsored us this season. And we've been running competitions throughout the season to enable you to win some merch, in most cases, a nice forest mug. And we've got four more of those to give away. This is our last giveaway of the season. And this time, rather than asking you to answer a question, it's very simple. What we'd like you to do is to leave a review of the 1865 podcast with your podcast provider. 
take a screenshot of that and then send it through to forestramble at gmail.com and we will select some lucky winners to receive a forest mug. Now, um, I'm afraid to say that there's a couple of restrictions on this one. Firstly, if you have received a prize from us in the past, uh, we won't be able to send you another one. Um, there have been a couple of people who've, who've won more than one prize, but uh, we do need to restrict that. And then also, unfortunately, we cannot post outside of the UK. We have had a couple of winners outside of the UK who sent it to a relative who's who's in Nottingham or whatever. So that is also an option. So, But please, regardless of whether you're interested in the merch, please leave a review of this podcast, hopefully a nice positive one, because that will help other forest supporters to find our content. Now, enough with the plugs. Let's get on with the podcast. And what we'd like to do is talk about VAR. Now, Stephen, in the match against Liverpool, we saw VAR at the city ground for the first time. I personally think that I'm okay with VAR but I'm not always okay with the way it's implemented and if we're going back to that theme of PTSD I think back to that Chelsea FA Cup match a couple of years ago where Alex Mighton's shoelace was offside and it denied us a penalty what do you think Stephen? Yeah my my worry about it is how it's implemented more than anything we've we've been on the receiving end as as we've talked about quite a few times receiving end of some questionable decisions this season. And if we get something like that in the playoffs where somebody's toenail is offside and and a goal's not given, it, it's going to be a bit galling considering the, the goals that we haven't had go for us through offside, through penalties not given and and so many instances of that during the season. I think Colin Frey, after Bournemouth, said we're in double figures for stonewall decisions that should have gone our way this season and haven't so yeah incredible really um because they haven't even themselves out the only thing is if it can guarantee accurate decisions and it's fair and it's implemented in the right way then you know i'm all for it my, my only concern is some of these teams like sheffield united for example and huddersfield i think unless they might have dropped out just before have experienced VAR in the Premier League. So I don't know if that works to their advantage a bit or if the, if there's certain officials who drop down and officiate these games who haven't been used to VAR. Mm. Um, sorry, who have been used to VAR and using that as a safety net. If that then throws up inconsistencies in the decisions that are made. Tom, that was the accusation that was levelled at the officials in the Bournemouth match, wasn't it? It's a Premier League officials. They're used to kind of letting it go and then basically relying on VAR to, to bring it back. And then that means that they sometimes miss stuff. Yeah. And another thing is that um, Stuart Atwell could not make a decision. He was, You could see he was like thinking of VAR and it wasn't there. And he was like making it like... You think he's blown the whistle when he hasn't, and it just went on. So I think I'm all for VAR in terms of fairness, but it's got to be implemented a lot better than it than it has. Um, I, I just think I, I just think it's got to be a clear offside rather than like a, a bootlace or a toenail. I think it's got to be. Uh, it's, it's one of them, isn't it? It's like you want it to be fair, but then it's going to be something like fine margins where we haven't got that decision and 
it's, and if that's the case of us not getting to the Premier League, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tough one to take. Yeah, well, just to, and on that topic, you know, Tom, for, for your benefit, listener, Tom's sitting there with his Euro 96 posters in the background. And, and I think you can see a contrast with the way that uh, VAR for offsides was implemented in the Euros and the last World Cup compared to the way it's done in the Premier League, where it is that hair's breadth. And, and that's a thing that I find, I just don't really feel it's necessarily in the spirit of the game. Um, Baz, what do you think? You, do you think that the decisions have evened themselves out over the season for Forest? Because I'm sure that fans of every single championship club would say they've had more decisions go against them than for them. I, I do think, uh, I've, as I said this in the Swansea report, we don't like to talk about referees in on this podcast it's it's one of those things it's it's lazy and it's an excuse and whatever but this season has felt terrible now I don't know if that's um because some of the referees are used to VAR or whatever or any whatever or whether it's just the the blooming pandemic hangover so sort of kicking in what I do think is that I don't watch very much Premier League football I don't watch Champions League because it's nothing to do with me so I'm not really that familiar with VAR as it's implemented but I do think it's almost like the back pass rule in that once it's implemented it changes how you play the game and I know you've often made the the Liverpool um pun i don't um, know what you're talking about but um one of the things is jürgen klopp has three years of var experience more than everyone else in the in the premier league because but the bundesliga have had it for so long and i think that's 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 changed how he sets things up tactically because he's had that experience of it i think you do need to to play differently if if there's var involved and as you say the referees work differently when there's var involved so on that theme, Baz, is it a problem that when you are playing at championship level, which doesn't have VAR, but you've got Premier League officials who are used to VAR, does that create a disconnect? I think it does. And it's one of those, it's it's like, um, yeah, as I say, it's like with the back pass, it's just, it took a while for people to get used to it and, and to, to switch between them. Um, if you if you played, if you, you had um, a, a there's, there's always, yeah, as you said, there's that little second of doubt where um, when, when you're celebrating a goal, I've, I've seen it when, when I go to the pub and watch a, a Premier League game with a friend and they'll celebrate a goal and they'll stop. Mm. And it's, it's a different feeling and it's a different type of game almost. And I think we're going to, it's a problem because of the transition. I think once you're through to the other side, then that's fine. But we're in a transition now and it's going to, it's going to make things difficult for us. But what I'd also say there, Baz, just as a, in response to that, is that the back pass rule was something that was, OK, it's 30 odd years ago now, but it was implemented unilaterally across world football and you don't need technology to do it. You just need to say you're not allowed to pick it up if you've passed it back, whereas obviously VARs are a very different thing. So oh, it's, it's different in that way. But um, what I was thinking of is, uh, yeah, for six months, keepers you could see the the panic on people on the keeper's face when the ball came to them it's that transition from one system to another that caused the problem whereas now we have the likes of um, you know we've got the likes of Manuel Neuer the sweeper keeper Alison Becker um, Edison Brees Samba you name them um Stephen um one of the things that I've actually felt is that it's been beneficial in the past. I've always felt that when you get Premier League referees refereeing championship matches, 
that they tend to be a bit fussy. And I actually think the opposite happens now. So thinking about the last three Premier League refs we've had, Atwell, Keith Stroud and Jared Gillick. And I actually feel that they've been more lenient. And I've actually quite liked that. And for all the pelters that Atwell got, I actually think that Atwell was relatively consistent in his decision making. Keith Stroud um, was pretty uh, was 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 much better than all of us feared. And Jared Gillick in the Blackpool match, he let a lot of things go, but he was consistent with it. So actually, I think that it has dragged up the standard of refereeing. Um, I okay, ignoring the linesman in the Bournemouth match, if, but just focusing from the referee. Am I am I crazy here? No, I think it's allowed the game to flow um, the way that Stroud at well, et cetera, the way that they refereed those games. Um, and I think that's one thing that the VAR technology has allowed. It, it provides a bit of a safety net for referees that if they get something wrong, it will be flagged up anyway, a little bit later rather than being whistle happy during the game and stopping the match when it perhaps doesn't need to be stopped. So on that basis, I, I that's been an advantage because there's been less need for referees to be called or whistle happy and disrupt the flow of the game. So that's been a benefit. But I think with that as well comes, I don't want to call it lazy officiating, but I think like with the the offside calls that we haven't had or the, the offside calls that haven't gone our way, instead of just letting it go and and allowing that, well, sorry, if they let it go, they've got the technology behind them to to make the right call anyway. But when it comes to those fine moments, those those decisions that could go one way or the other, and we've come on the wrong side of them, that's where I think the VAR has has been to the detriment because it's almost stopping officials from making decisions in the moment, and that's where you get good good officiating because they've got to be switched on and ready and aware of what's happening. And I think it's allowed a bit of complacency to creep in. But when you've got the technology backing you up, you can almost be complacent and allow things to go. Um, and that that's my concern is that, yeah, during the, the natural flow of the game, it's been great. But when we've needed those decisions to be made, they haven't been made. Mm. We're just, we're just normal men. We're just, we're just innocent men in this. Um, Tom, what were you going to say? Um, I just think VAR should be the same across and so, for, for example, in Europe, UEFA should have like as everybody agrees to it. That is the um, VAR guidelines, and everybody should stick to it rather than having this. Where the last Euros and the World Cup before that, you think, "Oh, yeah, it works great. We get it into the Premier League, and we make an absolute noise of it." So, I think it should be consistent um, across the board. But going back to Tuesday's game against Bournemouth, the worst thing was. Atwell admitting at the end to Steve Cooper, we should have had that decision. I'd rather them just, because it makes it worse, I'd rather them just say, no, we was adamant, he was offside, it was no penalty, he was looking for it. I wish he just, because it just makes the whole situation um, worse, you see. So I basically just wanted Stuart Atwell to keep his mouth shut. Stephen, on that topic of refereeing accountability, you're nodding your head sagely. Come on, what have you got to say? Yeah, I, it, it just shows them you should have given the decision. If, you, if you're apologising now, it's no good to us. You should have given the decision or stick to your guns and just, we don't need an apology because it's done with. Bringing it up again via an apology just 
adds a bit of injustice to it. And yeah, I don't like that. I mean, I don't think referees are made accountable enough anywhere. I think it's a bit of a boys club with the, the referees and how they're trained up, to be honest. And, and that doesn't help matters either. I, I don't think they're made accountable enough. And an apology at the end of a game that, and a decision that could have cost us £120 million doesn't really cut it. Baz, Steve Cooper's dad was a professional referee um, and you and I have talked over the season about his his comments cut near to the knuckle sometimes. He stops short just about, but it's not very nuanced. And in this one, he basically said something to the effect of, I think Atwell was trying to preempt my report. (laughs) Yeah, and I think Stephen touched on it there. I mean, it's one thing to get a, an offside decision wrong. It's another thing to get an offside decision that's potentially worth £120 million. <laughs> and then to admit that you got it wrong afterwards as well. Um, there is a big part of me that just said, I, I wish he'd just not said it because then we could feel aggrieved and and but at least we'd think, well, he knew he was right or he thought he was right. So at least he had that on his side. Whereas now we're, we're even more aggrieved because we know that he got it wrong. Mm, Okay, let's leave that topic behind for the time being, because we want to talk about positive stuff to close off the last part of this podcast. Um, Goal of the season. I asked everyone to have a think about it. Now, what I did do is uh, I thought to get the ball rolling. He's not here today, but I'd ask um, our friend, the Maradon, the Midlands. And he's gone for Jack Colback as his goal of the season, which obviously is fresh in our minds was absolutely astonishing, no matter which way you'd like to describe it. Um, Tom, what was your goal of the season? Jack Colbach's against West Brom, because people says it was a cross. And if you look at it carefully, and if you played any level of football, how the ball was like passed to him, it should have, if it was a cross, it should have been a side foot lofted into the air. He's correct that in, and he knew what he was doing with it. And, and basically, it's one of those where... It goes in or it can go into like Rose Edward the stand. He meant that. And for me, that's the best goal of the season. Okay, Baz? I've got three and they all have one thing in common. There's Jack Colback against QPR. There is Ryan Yates against Sheffield United. And then there are two by Lyle Taylor against Bristol City. And I have to go for Lyle Taylor because I think that was the moment when we suddenly realised we're onto something here with Steve Cooper. Are you talking specifically about the penalty and grabbing it yeah. out of the net, even though it's yeah. already deep into stoppage time? Yeah. And also, let's not deny it, I think you and I are in agreement. We quite like the way Lyle Taylor takes penalties. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okie doke. And um, uh, Stephen, what's your goal of the season? For the for the wider season, I agree wholeheartedly with Baz. I think those goals at Bristol City just marked a turnaround in the team and a feeling that something was happening. But... In terms of a pure goal scoring moment, Jed Spence against QPR was QPR was a tremendous strike. And from a player who is a right back who's been so good for us this season, an unlikely an unlikely hero in many ways, because when he came in and signed, I don't think anybody thought he would do much in a in a red shirt. We were questioning why we'd signed him in the first place. He's been brilliant, and then that goal was a fantastic strike. The the dip and the bend he gets on it. It's a beautiful goal. Watch it from from behind the behind the net. Yeah, fantastic hit. 
Mm, we might be hearing Jedman's name again in a bit. Um, for the record, you know, as, as often happens, I was holding, keeping me powder dry and I was going to say, all right, well, this is mine. And then I'm thinking, hang on, there's another one and there's another one, and there's another one. So what's unusual is that I tend to go for team goals, but the ones that I've chosen are individual ones. Philip Zinconagla at Reading, where he just slalomed through the Reading team. And then similarly, Keenan Davis, Keenan Davis which was also against Reading, actually, um, which was, as we described it at the time, Collymore-esque. But um, I'm also thinking about Jed Spence, and I'm also thinking about Jimmy Garner away at Blackburn, where Keenan Davis basically took on the entire Blackburn defence and then and then throws it through. And then Jimmy Garner left the keeper basically looking stupid by fainting inside and then uh, cutting in and 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 just passing it into the far corner. So so those those were all great goals. And of course Jed Spence's goal um uh, in that QPR match. I agree with you, Stephen. I think if I had to pick one, that would probably be the one that I would go for. And as I said, we may mention Jedman's name again because the Marriott on the Midlands, he's chosen Jed as his player of the season. Who's yours, Tom? Um, not quite a few, really, but uh, I think, say, James Garner, because he's basically ran that midfield since Steve Cooper's come in and he's been consistent with it. And then obviously he's had Ryan Yates with him, who really complemented each other throughout the season. Um, we all know in the championship that's um, if you win your midfield battle, you're going to win more games than you lose. So um, yeah, I'm going to say um, James Garner. I think he's been brilliant this season. Okay, Baz. Yeah, uh, I, I was going to say honourable mentions for for Ryan Yates because he's because he, he's Ryan Yates. Um, Jimmy Garner. What's what I really like about him this season is he's gone from being a defensive midfielder to someone who can play anywhere in midfield, number six, number eight, number ten. But my favourite player in the entire squad is Scott McKenna because he does that that economical defender thing where he just does the little shove or the little foot in and and. and Joe Worrell's a very swashbuckling kind of defender, whereas Scott McKenna does the bare minimum to get himself out of trouble, which I really love. Yeah, that's coming from John Olafielder's biggest fan as well. So, uh... <laughs> no more 2003. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stop talking about that. Yeah, you're right. Um, Stephen, who's your player of the season? You could pick so many. Um, the team and the individuals in the team as well have just been so good. I'm going to go for Brennan Johnson, purely on his output this season with 17 goals. He's double figures for assists. I think it's 10 or 11 for him. And also the way he's come into this side, he was written off a bit by Chris Hutton at the start of the season, wondering whether he was ready for the championship and if he could make the step up. Well, he's more than made that step up. He's, he's He could well be playing for in the Premier League next season with or without Forrest. So, He's he's been so good for us down that right hand side. His consistency, he's an exciting player to watch as well. How he carries the ball, takes on defenders at speed, and drives into space. It's great to watch him in full flow. And he's added those goals, crucial goals at times this season, with some really great finishes, some dinked finishes. One at Barnsley where he drilled it brilliantly into the net. Off the top of my head, I remember penalties he scored as well, big penalties. In the absence of Lewis Graben, uh, we'll forget about the one at Sheffield United. Um, 
but no, he's been he's been fantastic all season, and I'm, yeah, so pleased that he's really stepped up. And it's another kid from the academy who's doing good for the first team. Mm. Can everyone stop talking about Sheffield United? Um, so just for the record, when I was doing my prep for this, and we do actually prep this, listener, you may not believe it, but um, the names I've got written down: Spence, Johnson, Royal, McKenna, Garner, and Yates, and we've just mentioned all of them. And I think one of the things that's crucial is that I think all of those are players who have genuinely got the potential to step up to Premier League level. And I can't remember the last time that we had a team where we thought actually all that many players could could make the step up without too many problems. So a nice happy note on which to leave this podcast. Now, listener, you will be familiar with our match reports. And of course, we will be back with reports from both legs of the Sheffield United match. Um, we will be trying to keep our nerves in check and we will be cheering the Reds on. So please join us. Um, if you haven't subscribed to us yet, then please subscribe to us through your podcast app of choice. We're also on YouTube. For those of you who enjoy that kind of thing, we put things on TikTok even. So, um, you know, do join in the party for the last couple of matches of the season. Hopefully it'll be three matches to end the season, but let's not go that far just yet. So I want to say a big thank you to Tom Newton, to Stephen Topless, to Baz, to Jeremy Davis, and also to Sheffield United fan Paige. And my name is Rich Ferraro. This is the last 1865 Forest Ramble of the regular season. See you in the playoffs. Hello, silly me. I forgot to mention the deadline for our giveaway of some forest mugs from the terrace is 6pm on Friday the 20th of May and we'll choose winners over the following weekend. Sports Social Podcast Network.